Hopefully this will work. Good evening, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you all again. Again, like I said last week, I really enjoy Sunday evenings because it's a little bit more relaxed, it's a little bit more chill, and I get to feel more like a Sunday school teacher. This is where I naturally belong. And since I'm not doing Sunday school, we're going to have a little fun this evening like we did last week or two weeks ago. Um, Tonight, we will continue our study on the relevance of the Ten Commandments in the life of the Christian believer. Two Sundays ago, we looked at how the Old Testament scriptures communicated that the Ten Commandments are the moral binding principles for all humanity and how the Ten Commandments are the moral basis for all His covenant dealings whether the old or new covenants. So then, just to help us summarize, and just so that we can be all on the same page, for those of us who were not here uh, two weeks ago, uh, I'm going to summarize our conclusions from last time. Uh, We can follow it with four or so points. So first, God gave stipulations for Israel to obey in order to be blessed in the land. These stipulations or conditions, as we can call them, came to them in the form of the rules and commandments of the old covenant. You shall not, and thus and thus. Um, If Israel obeyed these rules, they would be blessed in the land. If they disobeyed, they were cursed. Second, we saw that these rules from the old covenant were differentiated by God. Um, That is, that God showed how the Ten Commandments were unique from the other rules. The Ten Commandments were unique. We saw that only the Ten Commandments were directly communicated to Israel and that they were uniquely written on the tablets of stone by the very finger of God. This showed their unique character in contrast to the other rules that we find in the Old Covenant or the books of Moses, the Old Testament Scriptures. We, must, uh, we thus classified the Ten Commandments as the moral law, whereas the other rules we classified as either the civil or ceremonial law. We'll touch on that again tonight. Third, we also saw that unlike the civil and ceremonial laws, the moral law or the Ten Commandments were in effect or binding before they were even given to Israel. We saw from the interactions with Abraham and with Adam that the essence of the Ten Commandments served as the moral basis for all interactions and covenants between God and man. We concluded that the Ten Commandments are always the basis for how man interacts with one another and with God. Because as image bearers of God, human beings reflect God's morality through the moral law, whether one is a believer or not. Fourth, conclusion from two weeks ago, and we're looking forward a little bit to that tonight. Uh, We saw that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and our obedience to it is actually a promise of the coming new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, the imagery that we saw of God writing the law upon the people's hearts is a promise that our once sinful, rebellious, lawless hearts would be given over to God's moral and perfect law, the Ten Commandments. So then, with that quick refresher, and I do say quick, uh, I want us to read from Matthew chapter 5. If everyone will turn to their copy of the Scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll start from verses 13 to 20. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we come before you now having uh, your scriptures open before us. And Lord, we seek now, this evening, to learn from you. Help us, particularly as we deal with a more complex issue of our faith. But help us to see it with clarity. Help me, Father, in my presentation of these things. Um, Let me not say anything that would be uh, a fault against your holy law or what you have revealed to us in your scriptures. But Lord, help us all to see that um, you have commanded obedience from your people. And that should be our delight. Help us to see that the law is our delight this evening. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. My aim here tonight is to show that Christ and the apostles clearly taught that the moral law, that is the Ten Commandments, are binding binding for new covenant, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost believers for us. I want to definitively show that we, both me and you, are obligated and responsible for keeping the Ten Commandments. My task, again, is going to have to be limited to the most pertinent of arguments and text. And as I said two Sundays ago, if you have any question, any qualm, any problem with what is being presented, please come see me. This is important. I want to talk about this because this is vitally important that we as a church understand why we believe and confess that Christians are obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. With that said, I have three areas of the New Testament I want to explore. Again, this is Sunday school time. I know it's sermon time, but it's Sunday school time for me. First, we will primarily be looking in the Gospel of Matthew and with the other pertinent areas of Christ's teaching that speak to the enduring authority of the Old Covenant and its Scriptures. Second, we will look at the principle of abrogation. There are certain parts of the Old Covenant that no longer apply to Christians. If the Old Covenant Scriptures are authoritative, how do we deal with abrogation? How do we deal with things that have ceased to have power? And third, we will look at the teachings of Paul and John, uh, John a little less so, and exactly what he means by fulfilling, what Paul means by fulfilling the law. All right. 
Sure, okay. There we go. Okay, sorry about that. These pages are a little bit sticky. Um, so first, our first point, we're going to be dealing with Christ's teaching on the law. So then, when believers think upon the great teachings of Christ, those powerful, moving statements of Christ, we should naturally find ourselves at the Sermon on the Mount. It is this section of Scripture that has so captivated so many Christians throughout the centuries. It is these words here in Matthew chapter 5 and following, of course, where we find Jesus' moral teachings, his moral precepts, what he thinks that we should do as believers, as his disciples. And it is these moral teachings that have made the great skeptics of the past come and truly ponder in amazement the wisdom and authority that Christ presents here. In fact, I think this is worthy for us to note, many theologians and uh, Bible scholars have noted that Jesus is actually presented here as mirroring the image that we see of Yahweh atop of Sinai, is that he sits down upon the mount and that he opens his mouth and speaks as Yahweh did with the Ten Commandments. Unfortunately, uh, this imagery is often lacked um, because this is uh, often this passage is often not used to teach such things. Uh, in ignorance of what the whole counsel of God teaches, many Bible teachers and preachers today presuppose that Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 20, actually taught that the Old Covenant or the Old Testament Scriptures are no longer morally binding upon Christians. Rather, Christ established a new moral code, which is often called the law of Christ. This is a theological error that we would call neonomianism. That's just a fun word for, you know, cocktail parties. You're welcome. Well, suffice to say, this is not the position of this church, nor the conviction of the Reformed faith. It is properly argued that the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus' clear declaration and affirmation of the enduring authority of the Old Testament Scriptures, i.e. the Law and the Prophets, as he would call them. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Law or the Prophets. Again, a shorthand for the Old Testament Scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless... Heaven and earth pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, at first glance, there may be confusion as to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and that until all is accomplished, the Old Testament scriptures will remain. But some ask the question, well, didn't Jesus fulfill the Old Testament scriptures? Did he not say it is finished when he gave up his life on the cross, fulfilling the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament? If he did, if this is true, and he did say that, and it is true that he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, then the Old Testament scriptures are no longer binding now because all is now accomplished. It is finished, as the argument goes. Our response to this is that this question puts the wrong emphasis on what Christ is actually teaching here. In this passage, Jesus is underscoring the moral law presented in the Old Testament scriptures, and he also deepens his audience understanding of what God had really commanded in the Old Testament. By fulfill here, by this word fulfill, Jesus does not mean to fulfill as to render useless or void. 
But Jesus means fulfill as to embody or exemplify. Just because the word fulfill can mean uh, uh, this, this understanding, this definition to render useless and void in some passages, does not mean that it must mean this in all other uses, particularly in this passage. We must allow the context of each individual passage to inform us how we understand the word fulfill in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus fulfills the law and prophets by his moral teachings and his example of obedience for us. Jesus, indeed, is the, imperf- is the perfect embodiment of what the Old Testament scriptures taught concerning God's morality and what obedience to God looked like. Jesus was preeminently a moral example for us. He was. This is the way in which he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, is that he embodied its morality. He embodied obedience. He embodied what it means to be faithful to God. This is what Jesus meant by fulfill. This proper understanding is supported by the fact that Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 20, and everyone, let's do us a favor. Let's get our Bibles out. Do you all have your Bibles in your laps? Amen? All right, we're Baptists. We like our Bible. He forgot that in Sunday school this morning. Baptists believe the Bible. All right, so then, everyone, take a look at your Bible, verse 20. Verse 20 says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This proper understanding is supported by this statement in 520. And it's contrasting Jesus' teaching on true morality and obedience. And he's contrasting this true, good, perfect, moral example of obedience to that of the teachings of the superficial obedience of that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus intends for his audience to keep the moral law as he, Jesus, expounded it from the Old Testament scriptures, not the superficial obedience that the Pharisee feigned as truly righteous. This is not what Jesus is getting at here. He's not trying to say, I fulfilled it so it's rendered useless, that you no longer have to keep God's commands. He is not saying that in any way. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying, embody true obedience. Embody my teaching. I will give you the truth. Don't listen to these false teachers here. That is what Jesus is saying here by fulfill. Fulfill true righteousness. Or that he is the fulfillment and the embodiment of true righteousness. Furthermore, Jesus' statement of the law passing away, right? In verse 18, does not in any way deal with the statement, it is finished at the cross. When he's talking about his atoning work. Jesus' words, until all is accomplished, should be read with a very another, you know, cocktail word, eschatologically. All right? That is dealing, eschatologically, dealing with Christ's second coming and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. This little conditional clause that Jesus puts on his original statement of the enduring authority of the Old Testament scriptures only makes sense in light of uh, this eschatological clause, right, is that nothing will pass away from the original written text of God's word. Nothing will fall away from God's word until all, i.e. new heavens and new earth, come. You see, believers will no longer need the written text of the Old Testament, 
nor the New Testament when Christ comes with the final establishment of the kingdom of heaven. In the new heavens and in the new earth, when all is accomplished, we will have direct communion with God and thus, and thus direct revelation with God. It is only at this point that believers will no longer need the written word of God. This view is further evidenced by the fact that Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven in verse 19. Let's read that. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, that is, the moral precepts of the Old Testament Scriptures, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, whoever does them, whoever keeps the law, whoever does the law, he will be called great, and uh, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's original audience would pick up on this language of kingdom of heaven. They're thinking of the entire renewal of the entire world. That's the entire purpose of John the Baptist. Uh, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're expecting this grand renewal of the cosmos. They're thinking of this entire completely new world. And and as later, Jesus would clarify what this meant, what this new... uh, Renewal, the coming of the kingdom would look like, uh, especially in chapters 13 and 19. Also, notice that Jesus is teaching that to relax the commandments of the Old Testament scriptures or not to have a deep, meaningful obedience contrary to that of the Pharisees will forfeit you from entering the kingdom of heaven. These are strong, sober words here. So right here we see the seriousness and the severity by which Jesus spoke concerning the enduring authority of the Old Testament Scriptures and their moral precepts, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. From this passage alone, and there are many others, I have to be selective, Jesus definitively underscores that he loves that Jesus loves, that he defends, and that he practices for our example. He fulfills for our example what loving God's law, loving God's word, actually looks like. Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount is not an announcement that we are free from the shackle of God's law in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Jesus is affirming that the Old Testament Scriptures and its moral precepts, the Ten Commandments, are still just as authoritative and necessary for His disciples to appropriate, to make their own to their own lives. Later in Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus pinpoint with laser accuracy what Jesus believes about the Old Testament and what it teaches about its moral and its ethics. We see this in Matthew 22. Open your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. 22, verse 34. Jesus is asked these words in verse 34 of chapter 22. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, these two, these two moral commandments, depend, hang, 
have their weight in all the law and the prophets, that is, the Old Testament scriptures. Brothers, what Jesus says here is exactly what we concluded from our previous study two Sundays ago. God's law, or the stipulations of the Old Covenant, or any other rule that comes from the Old Testament scriptures, they all have their moral basis in the principle of our duty to God and our duty to man. Or put more simply and more profoundly and more biblically here with Jesus. Our love for God, our love for neighbor. Brothers, this application is an echo from last uh, two Sundays ago. God gave us the scriptures so that we might know with clarity how we are to know his moral will and to know his moral law. In 2 Timothy 3.16, a very good passage, a passage that we all know, I would say, by heart. When Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God, he is immediately thinking of the Old Testament scriptures. Those are the scriptures that he's thinking of. Genesis to Malachi are thoroughly Christian scriptures. They're our book. It is these scriptures that Paul tells us that are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This righteousness is being living morally and ethically for the purpose that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Paul is merely summarizing what Jesus taught in the Gospels. By looking and delving into Old Testament narratives, the prophecies, and yes, the very complex and strange legal ritual material that makes us scratch our heads sometimes. He's even looking at that. When we come to embrace and understand these scriptures, those scriptures, is at this point that we can be as those who David sings of. In Psalm 1-2, his delight, this should be our delight, is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Brothers, is this you? The Old Testament can be complex for some. Do you meditate and you ponder upon God's moral precepts? Have you learned from God Have you learned how to live righteously before God from his law? Only from this Christian perspective of the Old Testament and its moral precepts can we say with Paul, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, Romans 7, 12. Brothers, is this your disposition? Is the law your delight? Do you see the moral goodness and perfection of God in his commands? If so, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Well, at this point, brothers and sisters, you may be thoroughly convinced, and I hope you are. I've been working hard on this. Uh, I hope that you are thoroughly convinced that the Old Testament does clearly still teach us, and Christ does clearly, uh, and Christ himself does clearly still teach us of God's moral law that it teaches us what is good and righteous in God's sight, and that every single word of God in the Old Testament is beneficial for us to understand and to guide us into holy living. But you, brothers and sisters, in your oh-so-infinite wisdom of the things of God, may be thinking to yourselves, but how? 
is everything in the moral law, everything in the Old Testament moral, right? You're saying this in your hearts. You know you are, right? You might have a little question. You know, hold up. Now, this sounds a bit, bit funky. What's going on here? Let me explain. Um, what about those really weird and strange laws that we see in the Old Testament? Let me give you an example. Does God really intend for me, for me right here, this time, this century, this, this era that we live in, does God really intend for me to learn what is good and holy and righteous before him by commanding me not to boil my goat in its mother's milk? Yes, that is a commandment in the Old Testament. Does God truly want me to learn from this? Well, neither do I have a goat, nor do I tend to boil it, for that matter, in its mother's milk. How is this relevant to my life? Dear brother, I'm so happy that you asked. Because this question so naturally leads to my second point. The principle of abrogation. You see what I did there? Hint, hint, we wink. All right. So, as we discussed last time, the Old Covenant clearly presents the Ten Commandments as the primary rules and stipulations by which the people of Israel were to live by. These rules were preeminently moral rules, intrinsically moral. That is, that they were uh, described and uh, show the moral nature of God, His righteous character. The other rules of the Old Covenant, um, and I believe that we call them uh, the civil and ceremonial, I hope I I call them that, um, which we labeled as the civil and ceremonial laws, detailed how the ancient Israelites were to conduct business, courts, and daily routine life. And they also taught us about the various ritual and religious rules that govern how God was to be worshipped. These additional rules, the civil and ceremonial law, They are still authoritative for us. They're still authoritative for us. Meaning that they are God's revelation and beneficial to study. These rules often explain and expound the Ten Commandments in the context of ancient Israel. These rules, when read properly, magnify the Ten Commandments and teaches us more of how the civil and ceremonial laws further elucidate what keeping the Ten Commandments looked like during the Mosaic era. It acted as kind of a commentary for the Ten Commandments. It helped us to realize, it helps us to realize what keeping the Ten Commandments really looked like during that era. So then, though these additional rules are often strange to us, especially the rule of not boiling a goat in its mother's milk, I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, Once we understand it in its original context and its intent, we see the unfathomable wisdom of God displayed in these laws, even the strange ones. When we read the rules without any of our cultural blinders and with their original intent and setting, we are not so perplexed at why God would command such things. Of course, this takes study, and we should seek to endeavor to understand these rules uh, and complexing things of the Old Testament that God has commanded. We should use our Sunday schools, our devotion time, and hopefully even sermon series such as this and other helpful means to help us understand God's law, even though many of these rules no longer apply, apply to us directly. Yes, we can, and we can and should learn what the Ten Commandments look like in the ancient times, 
because God still teaches us of our moral responsibilities and obligations from these laws. That said, the purpose of the Old Covenant laws, that is the civil and ceremonial laws, were not only to elucidate the moral law, to help us understand the Ten Commandments in their original setting, but also to highlight, and this is key here, to highlight the work and person of Christ. Everyone, please turn to your Bibles in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called, uh, that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, to- at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this is key. For He, Christ Himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By what? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Brothers, what we should catch here is this, that the old covenant was made in order to make division between Israelites and all other nations, the Gentiles. But the Old Covenant was never the means by which people were to be saved. We made this clear last time. It was never the means by which people were to be saved. It was preparatory, right, for unveiling the Son of God. It paved the way to teach us about Christ. It's uh, it's unveiling this Son of God, Jesus Christ, who truly does save us. So then, just to give us a quick example... The Old Covenant had many rules that distinguished Israel from all the other nations, from the Gentiles. Even the rule of not boiling a goat in its mother's milk acted as a signpost that Israel was different from the other nations. The other civil rules and laws acted in similar ways. They distinguished Israel from the practices and the laws of the other nations. Where other nations didn't care for the foreigner and stranger in their land... Israel was different. Where other nations oppressed women and the poor, Israel's laws were fair and just and dealt with humanity with godliness. When other nations practiced unjust court system, Israel was to exemplify justice in their courts. And we could go on with these comparisons. Even the mundane things, like how Israel was to boil their goats. Ultimately, these laws served the purpose to underscore the fact that Israel was unique in their societal, their cultural um, norms, their societal and cultural norms by virtue of the civil laws that God gave to them. Their unique civil laws, how they were to conduct themselves in daily life, made them unique from the other nations. But these civil laws are not intrinsically moral. That is, they are not moral in and of themselves. They are only moral because God commanded it thus. 
They are simply an expression of the moral law for a particular time and for a particular purpose. Once that particular time and purpose has been met, the need for the civil laws that separated Israel as the people of God from the other nations were no longer needed and thus abolished, thus bringing peace. This is exactly what Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 is illustrating for us. Once Christ had come and brought the fullness of God's plan into action, God's preparatory laws, the civil laws of the Old Covenant, are demolished. It is demolished because God's ultimate plan to unite all peoples in Christ had been met with the person of Christ and His work. These civil rules are abrogated. They are ceased, rendered void because the purpose to divide the Israelites from Gentiles is no longer needed. The moral principle to be holy and separate to God remains for us, yes. But I don't do this by how I conduct myself in court. I don't do this uh, by whether I'm circumcised or not or what certain foods I, I eat. Christians are holy to God by virtue of their union with Christ and are striving after the will of God. It is only by this that we are separate from the, this present evil age. The civil law in the Old Covenant may help us understand what practicing righteousness looks like now. It can help us. It can elucidate that. It can help us understand what's truly going on behind, the, uh, behind these laws, behind the Ten Commandments. They can help us understand these things, but they merely inform or describe what it is. They're not necessarily prescribed for us uh, now because in light of the person and work of Christ, we no longer need them. Brothers, we, we just need to note that and when, when it comes to these particular laws, the civil laws, and how to apply them to our lives, people can go haywire. People can. And the church has been a testament to this. What I just want to simply note here, and I don't have time to get into it, is that we need wisdom and care when trying to apply these rules to our lives. And that's why we need good elders and teachers to help us in this. Furthermore, the principle of abrogation also applies to the ceremonial law. uh, The laws that detail the ancient Israelite worship and their sacrificial system. We already heard this principle apply today with Dr. Nettles. And we will uh, expound this in further detail in the following weeks, particularly in the Sabbath and the second commandment. Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 teaches that the entirety of the sacrificial laws and ritual systems were signs or types that promised to be the far better sacrifice, that pointed to the far better sacrifice and temple that would be established with the person and work of Christ. Once Christ came, establishing a new covenant, a better sacrifice, and a better priesthood, there is no need for us to continue the practice of these ceremonial laws. Suffice to say, I will not belabor this point further. I think we catch this one a little bit more naturally um, because I believe this is more immediately apparent to us. But if you have any questions, come find me later. To apply this point, brothers, turn to John 1, John, the Gospel of John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 17. John here, as you're turning, John here is speaking of the amazing glory that is revealed by Christ coming into this world. What he does here has often been misunderstood, so we'll address it fairly quick. In verse 17, John states, For the law, the old covenant, was given through Moses, 
but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Some have taken this statement as derogatory of the Old Covenant. The critique goes, well, the Old Covenant only brought works righteousness, right? But in the New Covenant, we get grace and truth. Aha! So the New Covenant is much better. Well, that is true. The New Covenant is much better. But this is in no way John saying that the Old Covenant uh, is to be derided or that it's cheapened in some way. The Old Covenant was still Scripture to John. And it was used by God for His purposes to bring glory to Christ. The Old Covenant taught much about God's glory and redemption from foreign nations, and it told of His acts of old. The Old Covenant commandments, even the civil and ceremonial laws, are glorious. They are. And they display the truth and righteousness and wisdom of God in giving them to Israel. John isn't deriding the law or the Old Covenant here. John is setting before his audience the glorious acts and laws that have already been revealed to Israel and to the nations. John actually uses this great glory of God's old covenant to compare the glory that is revealed, is comparative, the glory that is revealed concerning Christ. John is not spitting upon the law. He's not spitting upon the old covenant. John is using the law as the backdrop to the greater glory that Jesus has brought in his person and work. Brothers, the question for us to ask whether we truly understand what God has done in executing his decree throughout history. With John's statement, we all recall the glorious things of the Old Covenant. That's what it's intended to do. We're supposed to remember Sinai. We're supposed to remember the great acts of old. But we also are to see how God's story even his laws are working towards the purpose that Christ, that Christ would be magnified. The civil and ceremonial laws are so presented to us that they serve to magnify God's ultimate purpose to make one new man made up of Jew and Gentile by one Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who is the better sacrifice and the better mediator of a better covenant made upon better promises. The law was glorious. And we need to understand that. But Jesus Christ is so far more glorious. That's the punch of John's statement. He's saying, if that was glorious, brothers, you don't know what's coming. That's what John is saying here. Brothers, do we see how God has so interweaved the Old Covenant laws and so used the Old Covenant narratives and the, the entire imagery of the Old Testament to bring about and magnify that work of Christ, the work that Christ has accomplished for us. Do we see this? If we don't see this throughout when we read our scriptures, if we don't allow this to seep into us, if we do not see it, ask God to help you in your endeavors as you read and understand the scriptures. But if you do see how God so works, if you understand the, these basic principles of understanding Scripture, ask God that you might be able to see more because there's always more to uncover with this Word. It is a treasure trove of gold. It is weightier and more precious than anything in this world. And we have it here. Don't let dust collect upon it. Read your Word. It is life-giving. 
in doing so, in reading your Bible with this proper understanding. Only praise to Christ will come from your lips and from your heart. Brothers, know God's word and know his purposes. They will always result in the praise of Christ. That is why we're here studying God's law, because that we might glorify and honor and praise and magnify Christ. Well, brothers, this brings us to our third and final point. Our fulfilling of the law. If it is granted and has been proven, I hope it has, that Jesus affirmed the moral law of the Old Covenant as the duty for Christian believers, for Christian disciples. And if the civil and ceremonial laws are abrogated and only provide ancillary general principles for us today to help us understand and magnify Christ, I want us to come to the conclusion that we Christians are still obligated to the moral law of the Ten Commandments. In the coming weeks, we will look at each individual commandment and see how it applies in life to the Christian believer. There are certain aspects and principles of the Ten Commandments even that no longer apply to us, such as the seventh day observance of the Sabbath, of the fourth commandment. And, but there are also other areas, um, uh, 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 certain aspects of the... Praise the Lord. Um, There are certain aspects of obedience that were not required previously in the Old Covenant, but now they are in the New, such as baptism and Lord's Supper. These are things that we are to be obedient towards. But what we are affirming here tonight is that the general essence of the moral law, as it's delineated in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and elsewhere, is that it's still binding upon us Christians. In our freedom in Christ, we are not free from any obligation or law that God has given us. The true bounds of Christian freedom are delimited by God's moral law, the moral principles and duties of the Ten Commandments. Once you go beyond that, once you go beyond the moral law, you're actually in something called rebellion. You don't want to be there. To illustrate this point, please turn to Romans 13. This will be our last passages for us to look at. Romans 13, as you're turning, Paul here is speaking after 11 chapters of painstaking exposition and theological reflection, he comes to chapters 12 and 13 to explain how Christians are to behave in light of God's monolithic, triumphant work of redemption. So in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul states this, and these these are just general principles in which he is encouraging his people to understand Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, and notice how he he is going straight towards the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling, is the fulfilling of the law. Throughout his letters, Paul has similar statements to this, that love is the fulfilling of the law, such as Galatians 6, verse 2. But this is ultimately what we saw with Christ in Matthew chapter 20, is it not? Love is ultimately the moral principle that God gives us to practice and obey. 
in reflecting Christ's example of obedience and love for God and man, we too can fulfill God's law. And it is only by knowing God's love and redemption that we can fulfill the law of God. It is only through the power of the Spirit that we can fulfill the law through love. But I want us to reflect upon this principle just for a moment more. That fulfilling the law is love. Brothers, often when we come to the Ten Commandments and when they're preached within our circles, and hopefully it hasn't been the case for me yet, it is easy to slip into moralistic do-goodism. When we talk about the morals and ethics and our responsibility as Christians, even when we are speaking from the pulpit and properly understanding the light of God's loving salvation, we may still just hear rules for us to follow. That's what we might just hear. Rules for us to follow. We might have the bland response of, oh yeah, okay. The Ten Commandments, we should keep them. It's what God wants us to do, I guess. It's clear from the Bible, I guess. Brothers, an aspect of the law is to show us our sin. One of its principal purposes is to show us our sin. And it should confront us when we are out of line with God's will. This is a primary aspect of His law. But what I want us to see in the following weeks is not this long form of finger-wagging. That, should get and, uh, that, that we should get and do better as human beings. Brothers, I hope that I'm not communicating that here tonight. That will come. Of course, we will feel condemnation, especially as we act out in sin and rebellion when we're confronted with the law of God. That will come naturally because we are sinners in rebellion against God, even as those who have been redeemed in Christ. But brothers, I don't want us to go away from this place in the following weeks thinking merely that we should do better. I want us to come away from this study on the commandments, not merely reflecting where we have fallen and are frustrated in our sin. I want us as a body to go away from this place knowing how we can love God better, how we can love God more, how we can love God deeper. I want to come away knowing, us knowing how we can love and serve one another better. I want to come away from this place knowing what true love looks like. The end goal for this study is not merely that we know our doctrine of the law of God or be conformed to doing much better, do-goodism. The end goal of this study is that we might know how to better love and serve our God and our fellow man, especially among the household of faith. The end goal is that we might daily be fulfilling and developing in our maturity and walk with Christ by fulfilling and exemplifying God's moral life as God has as Christ has exemplified for us in Himself. I want us to know God's moral law because God's moral law is how we love. Brothers and sisters, God has commanded something that is far, that something that is not far off and impossible for us to do. He is not command us to do something that we are not able to do. But His command of love is near you and is in in our hearts. Brothers, if we know of the love of Christ and His redemption, we know what love is and what it is 
to be loved and how to love and how this is to be lived out. Brothers, we should not walk away from this place. We should walk away from this place every Lord's Day, not despairing God's rules or laws. We should not be coming to the law, uh, listening to these commandments, listening to this long finger wagging. We should not be coming to this and being saying, oh, I just can't do it. I give up. This is frustrating. I can't do it. No, you can. Because God has redeemed you for that purpose, that you might love him and love one another. Yes, we are frustrated in our sin. Yes, we are tired in our sin. Yes, we will continue to fail. But God has said, love me. Love one another. Brothers, we can only do that if we know of Christ and his love for us. And I commend you, I exhort you, as a fellow fellow brother who often fails in loving you and loving our God, we must do better. But not because we can in and of ourselves, but because the Spirit of God so compels us to work our faith through love. Brothers, love one another. We should walk away loving God in Christ and knowing how to please Him, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. If you have been born again, if you know of God's love for you, your affections are so changed from mere rule-keeping, which is not life-giving, but to loving and serving our God by fulfilling the law of love. I conclude with these words from John 1. 1 John, excuse me. 1 John 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God... And observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world in its sin and its frustration. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith, our faith in our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God's law. God's commands are not a burden for us. They are the evidence that we know the love of God. Brothers and sisters, please, love God's law and so love God. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we do thank you that you have not given us a new command, but it is new that we... Uh, now know of the nurturing love of Christ. We've had this command from the beginning, but it is so refreshing to know it anew and to know it afresh in our souls that we indeed can please you and we can do what is righteous before your sight, not merely by our moralism or our do-goodism, but our simply coming before you, knowing that our God has loved us, has changed our hearts, and that we are able to come before you in holy and righteous standing of Christ's perfect work. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would uh, guide us and direct us now. Um, Lord, use this time, this Lord's Day, this blessed worship for your purposes to renew us in Christ, to redeem us in Christ, and to have us established in Christ. Lord, we ask this in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen.